Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Is there anybody gone? to listen to my podcast all about the girl movies we play teen girl see but it doesn't have the cool sound that the original has no it doesn't but that's i don't know some people don't like breathing that's true i generally try to cut out like large like From the podcast whenever possible. That's probably all me because that's how I breathe as a person because I have asthma. Because you have big titties that are crushing your lungs. Also true. (laughs) It's really a one-two punch of bad breathing over here. Yes. (laughs) Prom Party, welcome back to Musical Month. And we are kicking things off with Across the Universe. This one's coming in straight hot from the suggestion box. (laughs) Yes, it is. And I was delighted that this got suggested because I love this movie as a surprise to nobody. And I'm excited because it's a really fun jukebox musical. Which we don't do a ton of jukebox musicals. Especially not a lot of jukebox musicals that are teen-oriented. Yes, because, I mean, a lot of... Teen girls have probably watched Mamma Mia with their mom. Mm -hmm. That's not really for teen girls. No. And I know that some people might argue that Across the Universe is also not for teens, but I distinctly think this is a movie for teens. It's excruciatingly for (laughs) teens. I mean, obviously, Beatles lovers of all ages can enjoy this movie, but in terms of storytelling, this really much feels like it was concocted with teen audiences in mind. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And yeah, we're definitely going to dive into that one. Um, So Harmony, what is your experience with Across the Universe? So an interesting thing that happens on the podcast all the time is since you're the one who has experience as a former teen girl, Mm -hmm. since you're the one who leads discussions, Mm -hmm. since you're the one who has knowledge of the movies that we cover, you tended to have a lot more to say about stuff. And I go... Oh, you said, well, let's watch a movie. And I said, okay. But no, I have extensive experience with Across the Universe, Mm -hmm. both good and bad, because I have a complicated history with the Beatles. Yeah, so let's let's talk about it. So in high school, I was pretty neutral on the Beatles. And then like around the time-ish Across the Universe came out, like being a 15, 16-year-old, I think that's when a lot of people sort of discover the Beatles. Mm Mm-hmm. I started to become quite staunchly anti-Beatles. Oh, what a sad day. (laughs) I mean, I I, I was a precocious little shit. I sometimes would say things just to... I I wanted to drag 
critical thinking out of my classmates. Mm-hmm. You know, where I would say things like, actually, I think the Pixies kind of suck. And people would be like, what do you mean the Pixies suck? Uh, they were a huge inspiration on Kurt Cobain. And I'm like, cool, tell me one other thing about the Pixies and don't say Fight Club. Mm-hmm. And they go, um, they use loud, soft dynamics. I'm like, cool, you learned that because of Nirvana. Tell me one thing about the Pixies. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I approached the Beatles, I was never one of those people who, you like, you wear a band shirt and it's just like, name three songs. I didn't give a shit about that. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, please, like, don't just parrot a talking point you heard someone say. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't just be like, no, there is deeper meaning to the Lizard King. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think when you're a teenager and you learn a bunch of fun facts, the fun facts become your reason for liking something and not actually interrogating your own relationship with something. Yeah, it becomes a really easy way of kind of imitating knowledge mm-hmm. or, or ni- imitating understanding of something, mm-hmm. which like, you know, the Beatles are pop music. They're a boy band. They're like arguably the first boy band. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be deep. But when people would insist on things going, they're the greatest of all time, I go, tell me why. That's a bold statement. You got to you gotta back that up a little bit. Exactly. It's like <laughs> when people go like, here's my top 10 something, and it's just a list of stuff. And I go, but why is Dirty Work one of your favorite movies, Mr. <laughs> Wes Allen? <laughs> it's one of those things where I'm like, and Wes can explain it, but like when you see something like that, you just go... No, but work, work, walk me through this. Yeah. And most of the time they couldn't, and it was very frustrating for me. And I think something to point out is that you and I have a very similar approach to this. It's not a matter of you're trying to quiz somebody or you're trying to have them prove, you know, their their fandom or whatever. It's you genuinely want to know why, and people can't explain why, and then that becomes frustrating. Like, I'll fully admit I'm not a great person when it comes to discussing music because I am have a really hard time of selling Somebody on something other than like, I really like it because I'm not the best at talking about why I like a song. So like, I understand that, but it comes down to me not wanting someone to talk at me. Yeah. Like, I don't want you to just throw facts at me or just wait until I'm done speaking so that you can go, no, but here's why John's great. And I go... No. And John beat his wife. The, the classic John Lennon beat his wife thing. Yeah, let's, I think we should probably just get that out in the open right here. John Lennon's a bad person and he should not be anyone's favorite Beatle. No. And also, we know that he's not a good person. So our enjoyment of this movie or lack of enjoyment of this movie. Complicated is, enjoyment like, of It has movie. nothing to do with like a moral view on the Beatles. Like, oh, yeah. that's a separate issue. I would like to discuss the actual Beatles themselves as little as possible in this episode because this is about the Beatles, but it's not about the Beatles, but it is about the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And also everyone's favorite Beatles should probably be George. Mm-hmm. He's the respectable gentleman type. <laughs> I don't know. Paul's, Paul's a good egg. Paul, Paul seems very nice and he writes good hooks and he's the best singer. Ringo has my favorite solo album because the Ringo album has songs that he did not write. He's also a chaos goblin, and I'm all for that. Oh, I love your baby. <laughs> Please explain what that is, because people are going to be like, what the fuck are you oh talking about? Oh, my God. If you are not familiar with Ringo Starr's MS Paint art, it's, <laughs> it's incredible. Amazing. The best one is your baby. Yeah. But, like, all of them are amazing. I think Ringo's funny. I Ringo's think he's so hilarious. funny. I mean, I Can't Spell is one of my favorite things in the world. They were 
uh, doing like a like a press tour and you know the Beatles famously because Beatlemania is a thing people would yell questions at them so they started just as a bit coming out with signs so like Paul and George have ones that it's like no we can't we'll be in Paris I can't be there either and then Ringo standing in the corner with a sign that says I can't spell I love that um, troll I, I love the classic um, Ringo Starr aggressively telling his fans to stop sending him stuff to sign by just saying peace and love, peace and love over and over <laughs> yeah. again, being like, I'm very serious, peace and love. <laughs> Ringo's fun. But I don't know. I, I have complicated feelings about it, but I do like this movie. Mm-hmm. I watched it when it came out. I was really into it. I was exhausted by people who said they suddenly loved the Beatles and they couldn't tell me one song outside of, like, Yellow Submarine mm-hmm. that wasn't actually in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, well, you don't love the Beatles. You like Across the Universe. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's fine. But, but just own what you it, actually like. It reminds me so much of girls who watched the twi- who watched Twilight and went, I love Muse. And I'm like, do you like Muse or do you just like Supermassive Black Hole? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and And to be fair, like, we all come to things at a different point in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I will admit, I also had a big problem with the teenage I discovered the Beatles explosion because I grew up in a Beatles household. Yes, yes, you did. Your family passed down generationally strong musical influences Mm -hmm. and physical music like the Beatles. My family was a two separate copies of the Garth Brooks complete discography (laughs) box set household. It was more so I'm subjecting my children to music, <laughs> not I'm sharing it with them. So while you're saying like the the box set, because I have heard the the tales of the two different box sets of Garth Brooks in yeah. your household. Yeah. Uh, my dad is a massive Beatles fan. Papa Colangelo. He it, loves the it's, Beatles. It's a good thing he doesn't listen to podcasts or he would have some words to say to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I moved from Chicago to Cleveland, my dad was he, – he's an emotional guy, but he doesn't like people to know he's an emotional guy. No, he's a guy. tough Midwestern Italian dad. <laughs> yeah, like heaven forbid like anybody sees him cry, but he's like Ric Flair, like the wind blows and he cries. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, he was having a, a tough time with me moving. And as I was about to get in my car and pull away and drive to Cleveland with my my car all packed with all my stuff, my dad was like, hold on one second. He ran inside. I assumed it's because he was going to just cry more and he didn't want me to see. Mm-hmm. But he came back out with this custom built like box set holder he had of all of his Beatles CDs with their jewel cases. Mm-hmm. And he gave that to me because he wanted me to have it. And like. Everyone in our family was like, oh, shit. That's because a big deal. It's a big deal. It's like his his pride and joy. And I still have it uh, for obvious reasons because mm-hmm. I love it and I'm going to keep that forever. And I don't know, will that down to my dog, I guess, because we're not having kids. That's a good point. We've got nieces and nephew. That's true. We yeah, do. There we go. Um, so on, on the note of me being in a Beatles household, I did ask my dad if he wanted to be on the show, but he was like, I've had a couple of drinks and I don't want to be recorded publicly. Fair. I'm glad that you asked him the day you did and not the day before because the Cubs were playing and this just wouldn't have happened. Oh, he would have been like a screaming nightmare. <laughs> it would have uh, been funny. <laughs> it would have loved been, it. It would have been really funny. Your dad, like 14 <laughs> Budweiser's in, just talking about how much he loves Ringo or something. It would have been awesome. So I, I asked him a few questions, but I was like, how did you get into the Beatles? Because I wanted to know. 
And he said, I grew up with them when I was a very young kid. It really took off when me and my Italian cousins learned the words to Yellow Submarine. It drove all of the grandparents and parents crazy. Just picture it. A dozen Italian kids at Sunday dinner at my grandparents' house, and none of us could carry a tune in a bucket. <laughs> I, Yellow Submarine seems like the correct song for children to learn. I mean, it's talk singing. It, it, it's also basically a novelty song. Yeah. Uh, so that made me laugh. And then I asked him, who's your favorite Beatle and what's your favorite Beatles song? And the <laughs> response was, that is a question that should never be asked. <laughs> so that, uh, I thought that was funny. And I wanted to share because... We talk a lot about Papa Colangelo on here, and he never really gets his chance to shine or have his own voice heard. So I guess my voice reading his words. There you, you go. You didn't get Italian enough about it. I could have just been like, that's a question that shouldn't be asked. Yeah, that's that's more right. <laughs> <laughs> a little more chutzpah on it because he's, he's a couple in. Yeah so, yeah, so the Beatles were a big deal in my household. So I really gravitated towards this movie because I first learned about it because I was – being taken on a date by a boy who had a big crush on me. Oh. And I am pretty sure we were seeing 28 Weeks Later, but I don't remember. I know it was a horror movie, but I don't remember what movie it was because I saw that trailer and was completely obsessed with it immediately because I realized, oh my God, Beatles musical. And then I kind of blacked out the rest of the day because all I wanted to do was go home and show my dad that trailer. Hold, hold up. A couple, couple things here. So I don't know if, like, they were going for, like, regional synergy of being, like, 28 weeks later, it's set in England. <laughs> so, um, the Beatles. I, I don't know what the crossover appeal of those, I don't know if they just didn't select them very well, whatever. But can we just talk for a second about how you were smitten by the trailer for this movie, and it's not a very good trailer? That trailer does a terrible job at showcasing how weird this movie's about to be. Right? Okay. So we watched it right before we sat down to record, and it also makes it seem like it's not a musical. If it wasn't for Jim Sturgis starting the trailer by singing, you would really have no idea this is a musical outside of a couple scenes that seem like, oh, this is a set piece. This is mm -hmm. this is a number. There's like a couple moments where you get like a brief flash of like the military soldiers that are in like that small soldiers prosthetics. Yeah. Um, and that very much is Uncanny Valley. And there's a a brief shot of the Uncle Sam poster coming to life and reaching out and kind of singing. And it's like, oh, okay, I think this might be a musical. But they do a really good job hiding that this is a musical. Yeah, like, aside from Sadie, who's, like, in a band, so it's part of her character, like, they don't really feature anybody singing. They don't really feature any of the choreography. Like, they only feature, like, the big musical set pieces in, like, essentially a really quick slideshow in, like, the closing seconds mm -hmm. of the trailer. It's not doing a good job of selling people on this movie, which might be why this movie didn't do very well. And we'll get mm -hmm. to that when we talk about context. But mm -hmm. BJ was very, uh, she, she got emotional. She's just like, oh my God, it's like, it's like I'm 16 again and watching this for the first time. <laughs> it was really weird. Pavlov was on to something because I started watching that trailer and I got transported back immediately to that feeling. Body memory is real. Uh-huh. So if somehow you haven't seen Across the Universe, the plot is very simple. 
The music of the Beatles and the Vietnam War form the backdrop for the romance between an upper-class American girl and a poor Liverpudlian artist. I guess Liverpudlian is the way to, to, to refer to it. I never thought about the plural of someone from Liverpool. I, I also have never thought about that. But basically, it's every movie you've ever seen about the last three years of the 60s, and there's Beatles music. Yeah, it's also got some real Romeo and Juliet Greece, West Side Story, like Star Cross Lovers sort every of thing. thing. Yeah, it's all kind of there. And put a put a put a press save in your brain about Shakespeare, because we're gonna come back to that in in a little bit. But Across the Universe comes out in the mid two thousands, which is a very weird time. And honestly, at this point, every episode, I think I say it was a very weird time because yeah. time life is weird. Everything has been weird. We've never not been weird. Yeah. But what kind of context can you bring to the table about the release schedule of of Across the Universe? So there's really two fronts you need to kind of be approaching this from. So looking at it in like the teen sphere, like that's a factor, but it's like several steps removed from what this movie kind of is as far as its marketing. Like this is not in the same breath as Juno. No, God, no. So looking at what else was going on, the 2000s were a big time for the movie musical. I believe we've mentioned this a couple times in some past episodes. Mm -hmm. But as like a refresher, Moulin Rouge in Chicago came out at the start of the decade. They were very well received critically and financially. Mm Mm-hmm. And that kickstarted the 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 boom of the movie musical, most of which are adaptations. Mm-hmm. So you have like Phantom of the Opera in 2004, Rent in 2005, The Producers also in 2005, Dreamgirls, High School Musical in 2006, Hairspray, High School Musical 2, Enchanted, and Sweeney Todd all in 2007, the same year as this movie. Mm-hmm. So it was maybe a little crowded out by other things. Mm-hmm. Um I know that Johnny Depp was obviously the heartthrob of a lot of teen girls and Sweeney Todd merch monopolized a lot of space in Hot Topic at the time. Yeah, it definitely did. So you're tacking like the edgy kids and then there's like the more family-friendly Disney kids with multiple Disney musicals this year. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a little bit of a hard sell for this kind of ambiguous musical that's slightly more grown up but doesn't have the established baked-in fan base necessarily. The the fan base that's baked in is, God, we hope you still like the Beatles. Yes. Or you would take this from the other side of things, where the 2000s were extremely kind to our legacy acts. Oh, yeah. So while we've had music biopics forever, I distinctly remember uh, seeing the Tina Turner one and the Temptation ones a lot on TV growing up uh, on like VH1 or VH1 mm-hmm. Classic eventually. We have Ray and Walk the Line come out right next to each other. Mm -hmm. And those are huge, again, financially successful, critically acclaimed films. And this is when we also start to see a lot of a lot of reappreciation, a lot of youth-based reverence for like the legends of of classic rock stars. Mm -hmm. So bands who just in the 90s were very passe, like, you know. ACDC were kind of big, but, like, they had fizzled out after, like, Thunderstruck. They were, like, around. Def Leppard was not a big deal. Motley Crue was not a big deal. Like, if anything, they were seen as extremely hokey and uncool. But in the 2000s, oh, those are elder statesmen of rock. The actual legacy of being a rock star and being in a band, it's a big deal. You don't have to be a proven hitmaker to be, like, a nostalgia act touring force. Basically... What bands started to do around this time was they discovered that their history and their place in, like, the pantheons of music 
are just as powerful as producing actual hits. Uh, they they pretty much did what like Chuck Berry and the Beach Boys ended up doing for decades, which is we don't need to make new hits. We'll just keep touring with the old stuff and people's parents will bring their kids. So that's a really good point and I think also connects to another contributing factor as to why the Beatles kind of had this explosion of popularity again in the 2000s was because boomers had kids who were now teenagers and were now old enough to sort of make their own decisions about what music they wanted. They developed their music taste. And they all kind of like the Beatles because chances are their parents introduced it to them. If not, this is also a big era where bands are becoming a thing again because we Mm -hmm. really kind of lost that after the bubblegum pop boom. Bands were coming back around and then every interview was like, well, who inspired you? And what band is not going to say they were inspired in some way, shape, or form by the Beatles? So then that's another entryway for teenagers to rediscover this music. Also, I think there's something to be said about, like, saying you like the Beatles is bulletproof. Oh, yeah. Like, obviously, there's contrarians who are like, the Beatles suck. And, like, as critical as I am of the Beatles, I'm, like, never going to be like, the Beatles suck. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, they're the biggest band of all time. It's like sitting there going like, actually, I know that we constantly call Marilyn Monroe like the hottest woman ever, but she's ugly. That's just factually not true. Right. (laughs) So like you're just being a contrarian. Like there are plenty of fair criticisms to make about the Beatles. Like they are not without fault by any stretch of the imagination. But to act as if they're not influential or not important is ahistorical. Well, yeah, it's it's basically if you're insecure teen, no one can question your taste if you're betting on like a sure thing. Right. Um, also around this time, like the Beatles had been broken up for 30 plus years, I 37. Mean, John's been dead yeah. <laughs> since before we uh, were George, born. George was dead now for a few years, mm-hmm. but the Beatles were still selling stupid amounts of albums. Mm-hmm. Like uh, a lot of classic albums were getting re-released on CD in the nineties and the two thousands. Like my first exposure to a lot of my favorite bands like Elton John was like the first time available on digitally remastered CD. <laughs> Time Life Magazine presents <laughs> Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road with hits like Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Th- things that you just like, it's it's things that have permeated my brain mm-hmm. because like I'd be watching like Nick Jr. or something as like a four-year-old and these would be the ads to sell CDs to the grandparents who were stuck babysitting during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff, stuff like that was happening and the Beatles were having big selling CDs. Um, One came out at the very start of the decade. It sold 30 plus million albums. It's the biggest selling album in that entire decade. And one is the name of the album, not like, oh, they released an album. Like, it's called One. Yeah, it's all of their (laughs) number one hits. Um, They also had Love, which was the remix album that they did for Cirque du Soleil. That sold millions of copies. Look, that show fucking rules. I'm sure it does. I saw it when I was in high school in Vegas. And all I'll say is that there is a... Uh, a segment that is skateboarding and it is set to help and their helmets look like mop top hair and it rules. <laughs> I'm into that. Also, it features the best version of Octopus Garden. <laughs> oh God, yeah. It's really beautiful too. Like, So, <laughs> I don't know, man. Um, but basically, the Beatles hadn't been producing hits. Like, they're, they're, they're not around anymore. Half of them literally aren't around anymore. Mm-hmm. But they're still selling large amounts of stuff. So it makes sense for in the boom of musicals mm-hmm. to make this show. It makes sense in the continued boom of the Beatles and the fact that you can go and buy like a Led Zeppelin or a Rolling Stone shirt at a Macy's because it's just available now in a way that it wasn't really before. Like it makes sense to dust this off and have this be a thing. But what I find fascinating, and this is not necessarily true for a lot of theatrically released musicals of this time, is this has no source material. Correct. Outside of 
it's Beatles music. Yes, but like it doesn't have a stage production it's based on. So, BJ, would you would you care to talk about the stage? I would love to talk about the stage. I know because it's your forte. <laughs> All right. So, Across the Universe is directed by Julie Taymor, and if that name does not ring a bell for you, um get hip to her theater work. You're not a theater kid. You're not a theater kid. I wasn't a theater um, kid. I learned very quick because <laughs> you you had a tirade. <laughs> yeah. Julie Taymor is a fucking legend. She is the first woman to ever win Best Director for a Musical at the Tony Awards. She won for The Lion King. So The Lion King on Broadway, that was her reinterpretation of, obviously, the Disney musical. And it is known for being, like, this beautiful spectacle. But it doesn't feel like cheap money grab spectacle the way mm. that some shows tend to feel these Disney days. Disney on ice? Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's that. It's not Disney like, on ice. <laughs> it feels like a genuine and sincere reinterpretation of the material. It also doesn't feel like you're watching a Disney movie because it is so stylistic and so beautiful. Mm-hmm. That is kind of her thing, is that she is a visual artiste. Oh, Broadway um, does love its big cats. <laughs> Broadway does love big cats. Very true. Um, but Julie Taymor is so much more than just the Lion King. That's just sort of her like big claim to fame. Mm-hmm. Um, she is also very well known for her adaptations of Shakespeare, which I think connects to Across the Universe because Across the Universe kind of is an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. But Julie Taymor's thing, like the the thing she is known for is just absolutely mind-blowing visuals, which she brought to Across the Universe. And I think that because of the trailer hiding the fact it's a musical, because of the trailer kind of hiding a lot of the trippier aspects of this movie uh, and, like, shoehorning it at the end into, like, quick cuts of really wild visuals with no explanation, I don't think people were ready for how adventurous this movie was going to be. Which is so funny because, again, like, this movie feels like it's tailor-made for teens. Like, it mm-hmm. stars young people, but it's so made for teens because every single shot of this film feels like you should throw, like, a sepia filter over it and make, like, a Tumblr gift set about it. Which I'm sure people did. Well, I'm sure they did, but, like, that wasn't really, like, a Tumblr gift set wasn't a thing in 2007. Yeah, yeah. And also, it feels really criminal to put sepia filters over this because we would just want to make it seem like it has more artistic merit. Like we're fucking Zack Snyder or something. Right. Even but you it's know beautiful. it happened. You know oh it happened. Yeah. This movie is so is so beautiful. And I, I do want to quote something from an article that was on Refinery29 that was titled, Across the Universe is a cult classic, so why doesn't Julie Taymor get any respect? And they talk about her vision and how people weren't on board with it. And it's framed in a way that I think is really important. And there are quotes from Julie Taymor in here. You'd expect such a movie to elicit a visceral response. At the very least, it should inspire respect for the sheer scale of ambition required to make it a reality. And yet the reception from critics was mostly lukewarm and unenthusiastic, the kind of reviews you'd see in response to an amateur's first attempt, as opposed to those given an established auteur with mega-successes in theater, if not film, under her belt. There were exceptions to tepid reviews, of course. Roger Ebert loved it and gave the movie a rave, while Stephen Witte at the Newark Star-Ledger hated it and called it a sloppy collage. But overall, Across the Universe's reviews don't reflect the grandeur of the movie. With 53% on Rotten Tomatoes, it can't even claim the misunderstood classic badge of honor of having been viciously trashed. Mostly, it was just ignored. It's about respect, Tamor told Refinery29 over a Zoom call in June. There isn't a sense of awe over women directors. 
Partly, this may have been because Tamor's name and work were still so closely associated with theater at that point, despite having directed two films. But as she pointed out, Mike Nichols had no problem doing both. He was as much a theater director as he was a film director. But he's Mike Nichols. Another plausible explanation is that women directors rarely get the benefit of the doubt when taking on complex and visionary projects. For comparison's sake, take a look at how Rotten Tomatoes describes the critics' consensus over Darren Aronofsky's Mother, a polarizing and controversial movie that was nonetheless uniquely creative and ambitious. Accompanying a 69% rating, the blurb reads, There is no denying that Mother is the thought-provoking product of a singularly ambitious artistic vision, though it may be too unwieldy for mainstream tastes. On something like Mother, even if people didn't like it, they think they should think there's something important there because he's Darren Aronofsky, Tamor added. So you have to consider that there may be something that you missed. It's almost like you're not up for it. Oh, that is so the thing. It absolutely like, is like, the thing. People are not prepared to deal with the conversation that Aronofsky keeps shitting out the exact same movie and people go, oh my God, he's so talented. But it's all the same movie. It's um, the same goddamn <laughs> movie every time. Yeah, but she's totally right though. When Aronofsky or Ari Aster, that's what we're seeing right now with Bo is Afraid, is when we have these male quote-unquote auteur directors that take these massive swings, even if people don't like what they're doing, they're like, yeah, but you gotta respect what they're trying for. Big swings. We we love Tarantino's obvious things he does in every movie. <laughs> we love all of the bonkers things that Am Night Shyamalan decides to do and has his defenders. No one can have the same aesthetic as Wes Anderson. Oh my god. Like, people, like... <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I love auteurism at all. That said, I'm so hyped for Bo is Afraid. This will be the Ari Aster <laughs> film I won't shut up about. The one auteur that I'm like, he can do whatever he wants forever is Sam Raimi, but that's neither here nor there. True. Um, but she's totally right, though. Like, men are allowed to be auteurs, but when women do something like Across the Universe where it's this big visual swing and there's a lot of, like, metaphors and there's a lot of things going on, instead of being like, huh, maybe there's something wrong with me that I didn't get this the way we do with male directors, it was like, well... She fucked up. That was not good. Mm. Like, the, the onus then gets put on the director rather than the audience, which is the complete inverse of what happens with male auteurs. Yeah. So this is definitely a movie that lives under the same umbrella for me as Twilight, where because of a woman director, a lot of stuff got shit on in ways that would not have gotten shit on if there was a male director. And, you know, misogyny is a hell of a drug. Yeah, we deal with it all the time on this show. <laughs> we sure it's, do. It's just, I love this so much that Julie Taymor is just like, no, fuck that. She's calling here's, it out for what the it problem. is. <laughs> yeah, and good for fucking her. She absolutely should. But before we dive into the nitty gritty of the movie, it is the longest time we've ever waited before everyone's favorite part of the show. Happy May Musical Month prom party. We have some... We'll say interesting things going on over at the Patreon this month. For our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes, we are doing Dear Evan Hansen, because neither BJ or I have obviously seen that, because why would we subject ourselves to it? But I'm somehow thinking, maybe it's not that bad, even if it is bad. And to offset that, we are also covering Tick Tick Boom. This month's Patreon playlist is also going to consist of covers of musical theater numbers by popular artists and for our musical milestones episode bj made me watch a lot of stuff about glee and i am exhausted and i don't know why ryan murphy is like this 
In addition to all of that, the Patreon also gives you access to our suggestion box, BJ's monthly wellness newsletter, and it is the penultimate episode for our Freaks and Geeks revisit. It's been a wild ride, and I'm going to be sad to see it go next month. But wait, there's more. Are you tired of scrolling through the same old movies and TV shows on your streaming service? Do you want to discover new voices and stories that break stereotypes? Then it's time to join Soleil Space, the world's first truly global community streaming platform. Soleil Space is more than just a streaming platform. It's a community of people from all over the world who are passionate about authentic storytelling and promoting underrepresented voices. With Soleil Space, you can discover the world's hottest emerging filmmakers, support filmmakers from your own culture, and curate films for your community. But that's not all. With Soleil Space, you can participate in watch parties and join groups to recommend films and meet new friends who share your love of film and culture. You'll explore authentic worlds of never-before-seen, critically acclaimed films from underrepresented countries and cultures. Join the Soleil Space community today and start exploring a world of diverse, authentic stories. Visit www.soleilspace.com to start your free two-month trial for This Ends at Prom podcast listeners using promo code TEEP60. Once again, that is S-O-L-E-I-L space.com and the promo code of T-E-A-P-60. Thank you so much, and back to May Musical Month. Alrighty, so let's actually talk about Across the Universe, the movie, which is a bunch of characters, slice of life coming together. Um, so let's let's talk about these characters. We start with Jude, Mr. Jim Sturgis. How do mm-hmm. you like Jude? I feel like I feel about Jude the way I feel about most of these characters, which is that they are not terribly deep. Mm-hmm. Um, he's fine. Like he's 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 a good working class boy from from Liverpool, and he just decides he wants to move to the state to be his dad. Mm-hmm. Like. That's that's interesting, and I I can respect that kind of that kind of drive and desire to go out there and do things, and then he ends up falling in with the with the rich kids at a an Ivy League school, mm-hmm. and they sing with a little help from my friends and get shit hammered. Yeah, and it's, like it's pretty fun. Like I don't I don't know if breaking this down character by character is going to be like the best way to do it, but like in ter- in terms of in terms of sequence, in terms of musical numbers, mm-hmm. the opening like twenty minutes of this movie is just like throwing characters at you where at some point they'll have something to do with each other, but as of thus far, they don't. Which is a very theatrical way to introduce your characters. Correct. It's just a weird read for audiences. And Mm -hmm. I think maybe that's one reason people had like a tepid response for this film going Mm -hmm. into it is like the opening 20 minutes and like the closing 10 minutes are probably the most vital parts of the film in terms of like the things that stick in your mind. Mm -hmm. And it definitely sets like a. It maybe builds up an expectation of just being like, oh, it's like it's slapdash. It's not structured like a normal movie, and it doesn't follow good pacing or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, and this is where across the universe walks this really fascinating line. Where as much as this movie is not about the Beatles, because it's not, it's about other characters using Beatles music as a vehicle to tell their story. At the same time, this movie kind of feels like it's about the Beatles in the sense that the beginning 
is very poppy. It's very, it's pretty easily accessible in terms of, oh, I see how they're doing this. I get it. These are where they're a doo-wop rock band, basically. Yeah. And then in the middle, it gets a little experimental. It gets a little weird. And then at the end, it's like, and we're back to a nostalgia feel-good happy act. Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of feels like the movie shares the same pacing as the trajectory of the Beatles' career, but... You know, you don't need to know that for that to be effective. No. But it's one of those things where it's like, knowing Julie Taymor, this feels like it was an intentional choice. And no, I respect and like that. But I get why that's not going to be accessible for a lot of people. Yeah. It just, it feels like one of those choices where if this had source material, they would have done one of two things. Mm-hmm. If this was based on a stage production, when they brought it to screen, they would have made some significant changes to make it more feel more like a movie and less like a stage production. Mm-hmm. Or they would have changed nothing and everyone would have went, that's how it's originally written. And they would have accepted it probably more warmly either way. I agree completely. I think if there was at least some familiarity with how this is presented through Julie Taymor's vision, people would have been way more on board than they were when they showed up into a theater and it turned out to be this like larger than life like visual feast that Mm -hmm. they probably just didn't have the stomach for that day. <laughs> no, and I mean, again, the trailer doesn't make it seem like it's going to be that big. Or that political. Yeah, this is a pretty political movie, but it is political in what I would say, like, an intro 101 sort of way. It's political in the way that, like, teenagers are are invested in politics in 2007. Y- yeah. Which is, I have an ideal, and I have standards, but I can't or won't do things about it. Yeah, or it's just I don't know how to actually enact change, so mm-hmm. I just got to be loud because it feels better than doing nothing. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's also something to be said about this coming out in the wake of 9-11 because oh, there, was, there was definitely a huge push of teens and 20-somethings post 9-11 looking back towards what the teens and 20-somethings were doing around the time of Vietnam, because Mm -hmm. that was the last, like, really big, like, countrywide kind of push for teenage activism. It was also just very similar in that they were equally pointless wars. They were equally pointless wars, and something I think extremely important to point out is that it was something that also affected white people, because there have been plenty of activist movements between Vietnam and 9-11, but they were led by marginalized people, obviously the AIDS crisis being probably the most prominent one, um, or, you know, Stonewall, anything in between that. So these were activist marches that were led by trans people and people of color and... Not rich white kids. Not rich white kids. Uh Um, So that didn't have the same, like feel of, oh my God, everybody in the country was involved the way that it did with 9-11 in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, And we do see a little of that kind of hinted at in this movie, but like we said, this is very surface level in how it's addressing and acknowledging Vietnam because that's not what the movie is. Like, Vietnam is a backdrop, but this is not a movie about Vietnam, if that makes sense. No, I mean... Uh, there around the time that I saw this movie, uh, I think that's when we got VH1 Classic in our household, and there's a mini doc starring Julia Stiles that I remember being fine, if not every other version of this story that you would see about the 1960s, and mm-hmm. I think it was just called the 1960s, and it's basically everything in this, but over 
five hours Mm -hmm. and with no musicals, obviously. (laughs) Um, So, like, it's a very familiar setting. It's a very familiar kind of story. It's all the same things that we see in in any youth-based story around this time. Mm -hmm. I think that the way that this movie approaches its politics is largely the way that the Beatles' music approaches politics, which is indirectly. Mm -hmm. Because, like, there is a sense... This is a fantasy movie. Yeah. The Beatles are... Kind of a little bit of a fantasy escapism for white kids probably during that time or even during the 2000s where it's like, well, they're political if I want them to be, mm-hmm. but their music doesn't actually address politics. They're this British band who is that doesn't have any experience firsthand dealing with like riots in Detroit or people getting shipped off to Vietnam. Right. And there's even a line in Across the Universe that sort of touches on that where Jude is talking about the war and someone combats with him of like, yeah, well, your number's never going to be called because mm-hmm. you, you're you not American. Like, yeah. you're not going to get drafted. So it's really easy for you to feel the way that you feel because it doesn't actually affect you. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that is a, a pretty honest critique of the Beatles, like, attempts at political music. and what, Specifically John? Yes. Specific- <laughs> <laughs> and what I do find, though, really fascinating is that the movie and the Beatles, because it is this, like, very – surface level kind of 101 introduction to a Mm -hmm. lot of things like that's also the same thing with the Beatles music um like you and I've had this conversation off mic plenty of times about how the Beatles music is so strong in its simplicity Mm -hmm. in that it's like very foundational it's very building block um it's hard to listen to them like for the first time for a lot of people because They've inspired so much and influenced so much that listening to them for the first time can kind of sound primitive if you're not used to it. Primitive is absolutely the operative Because word. people have taken like the, the building blocks they set and have expanded them. And so if your introduction was like, it's like when little kids watch animated movies from, you know, forever ago or like CGI from when we were kids. And they're like, that looks like shit. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, because yes. you grew up watching Avatar. Disney's dinosaur does look like shit. <laughs> yeah. It didn't at the time. At, the at least time, I don't remember it looking bad. But I've seen it recently and went, oh, no. Why do they <laughs> smile like people? <laughs> right. But I think the one difference that the Beatles do have is that because there is this prestigious reverence about them like no one's being like no nah, dinosaur they, was they were magic. the first they were right. the first they're not the first but people always commonly believe that they're the first and therefore they are more exempt from scrutiny mm-hmm. in their simplicity exactly and, like as, as as far as like interpretations of art is concerned there's something really good about that there's obviously bad things about that but like I think that them being so simple lends themselves well to a jukebox musical because there are a number of arrangements in this movie that I actually prefer to the Beatles version. And Mm -hmm. some of them, I think, are like the definitive versions of some of these songs. Like principal among them is the um, Let It Be number Mm -hmm. because that song, I mean, it craves to be a gospel song. Mm -hmm. It does. And this just works so much better than like any other version. And I think this also goes into something you and I have talked about off mic with the Beatles is so I am very much like the Beatles will always be kind of my number one. That's just who I am. The Beach Boys are your number one. Yep. And if if anybody ever wants to interact with Harmony on social media, just ask her about Brian Wilson. I mean, it, it <laughs> they're they're completely different. That's the thing is like they're two totally different camps, but they're not. Mm-hmm. Where the Beatles are a pop super bit group that's a rock band. Mm-hmm. The Beach Boys are maligned because they're not enough of a rock band. Right. 
The Beach Boys are a pop band. But Brian Wilson is a genius. Of course he is. <laughs> and I feel weird saying that because that statement helped contribute to his mental breakdown. I know. But like, he is. He is. He's a genius. <laughs> um, so, But I think this falls into Across the Universe because a couple of weeks ago, the Grammys did this big showcase for the Beach Boys and it was a bunch of different artists playing their music and interpreting their music however they saw fit. Some of them much better than others. Oh my God. That Michael McDonald version with Take Sick was like, don't worry, baby. And he's old as shit and does not have breast support? Yes. Why is that the best version of the night? It was really good. Why is that so good? Brandi Carlisle was also great. Um, Tonics she, was great. I love that she sang a duet with uh, John Legend, but she sang it like a dyke. Yeah, it was great. Big fan of that. It was really great. <laughs> um, but outside of a few exceptions, the whole time we were listening, we were like, I would just rather listen to the Beach Boys. Yeah, like the Fall Out Boy covering Do You Want to Dance, which is like a cover that the Beach Boys were doing, mm -hmm. is not only the most obvious thing they could possibly do, but it also just feels really uninspired. Right. Um, I mean, what my favorite part of the night is when they just kept cutting back to all the all of the Beach Boys, and I put that like generously for a couple of them up in the stands. <laughs> First of all, they set Brian and Mike Love as far away from each other as possible. That was smart because someone would have died. Oh, oh my God. And Brian is just having a miserable time. So they keep reusing like the same two shots of him clapping. Because that's probably <laughs> the only he probably time he clapped wasn't because he was being a grump the whole night. <laughs> Which like, this is funny to laugh about. I hope this didn't actually bring him any sort of like severe existential dread or mm -hmm. misery. But like, I hope he was just being a grouch because he was stuck near fucking Mike Love and Bruce Johnston. <laughs> Yeah, but like the whole, you know, this whole time we're watching it, we're like, I just wish I was listening to the Beach Boys. Whereas when I watch Across the Universe, the way that the music is reinterpreted and in a lot of cases, like changed completely and the, the meaning is changed behind it is it all works for me. Like, yeah, there are definitely some arrangements where like, nah, I prefer the Beatles version. But there are some arrangements where I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I think people understand this song better now mm -hmm. because of the way it's presented. And I think that's what, like, what makes the Beach Boys so incredible is that they kind of can't be replicated. And what makes the Beatles so brilliant is that kind of anybody can cover the Beatles and it's still going to fucking rule. It, it'll at least be fine. Yeah, at, at minimum, it's, hard, it's fine. You have to, like, be really untalented or actually try to not do the Beatles well. Right. Like, like that, that's kind of how it works because, like, they're... They're like, you know, it's 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 salt and pepper. Yeah. It should go in every dish. It's so obvious. Like mm -hmm. you have to really oversalt something to fuck it up. Like right. it's, it's just it's a thing. But some of the some of the numbers in this, I think I don't like them as like songs. I like them as interpretations or set pieces. Okay. Like um Oh Darling as a duet. Oh, I love I love that as a fight. Yes. And it's a mockery and it is sarcastic. Yes, because I don't want to actually listen to that, like, honest, as, like, a, a, a number on the soundtrack, no. But, like, as a set piece, I'm a big fan of how that works. All alone. Speaking of it as a as a fight, BJ, didn't you get into a fight with O'Darling one time? 
Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, like we've discussed, people got really hot on Across the Universe. Sure. Um, and when I went to college, there was a drunk man outside of my dorm at like two in the morning, just drunkenly singing Oh Darling. Sounds at- like he got dumped. I think so. Like, I don't know. This dude was in a bad way. Um, And he was just outside being like, oh, darling, (laughs) just drunk out of his mind. And everybody's just like, shut the fuck up. And like screaming at their window. So like the whole building is yelling at this guy. And I don't know why. I think it was just insufferable 18-year-old theater kid. I don't fucking know. But I opened my window and I sang back at him. Like I battle sang back at him. And after I got my line out, he like kind of sobered up for a second and was like, you have the voice of an angel. Can I come up and see you? And I just went, no, you're fucking drunk. And like slammed the window. And like (laughs) everyone at the building was like, I think that's the end of that. Thank fucking God. Because he left. (laughs) I love that he thought he was in an indie film. We we angrily were fighting of fight singing the Beatles in the quad. And that's how I met the love of my life. Someone, for the love of God, tell these poor boys that Say Anything was just a movie. Oh, my God. Oh, God. That was a scene. We just started watching The Righteous Gemstones. BJ's seen it before, but I haven't. And they totally have a fucking be- uh, someone named BJ, BJ doing a Say Anything thing. <laughs> he brings his little Bluetooth speaker. Oh, my God. I love BJ. But He's like, a great character. Yeah, so... I don't like that as a song. I don't love it as a, an arrangement per se, but I like it, its place in a musical or in a movie. Mm-hmm. The same thing can sort of be said for um, the With a Little Help from My Friends number, which I love that song getting repurposed as a drinking song. Oh, it's so good. And I, 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 I like it because it has the standard Beatle like plonky thumping tempo bom, that that bom, song has bom, or like All You Need Is Love has or Obladi Oblada has. It's very Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah. Um, I love <laughs> that... They have that part and it makes sense, but as they get more lurid and more drunk and have maybe have a lot more fun, it slows down into like the six, eight time signature of Joe Cocker's version and Mm -hmm. that's the definitive version of that song. Oh yeah, like the amount of people that find out like, wait, Joe Cocker's covering a Beatles song for the Wonder Years theme? It's like, yeah, Yeah. because it has kind of overtaken their version. I mean, to the point of even changing the lyrics and it's the definitive way to sing the lyrics now. Mm -hmm. So like- I love that as a set piece, but I don't necessarily love listening to these guys just like drunkenly shout and like the tempo is being dictated by the singers, not by the music. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I like it as a song. I love it as uh, a drinking song, though. I also love that that song as a drinking song and the fact that it becomes almost a call and response. Mm -hmm. It sort of feels like summer nights in Greece. Yeah. But for this version, because it's for the lads, for the lads, 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 lads. (laughs) Like it very much has that energy. And because it's also set in uh, Ivy League schools at Princeton, they also use the acoustics of their uh, of, of their environment mm-hmm. because when they have like the moment where it gets a cappella and they're singing in like a stairwell it is just a a wall of sound and mm-hmm. it is so beautiful and it's like yeah you couldn't have gotten that in a fucking recording studio you can only get that sound in a stairwell mm-hmm. and that's really cool yeah so like i like that honestly this is going to be a thing that's probably not controversial to say, but this is a bold thing for me to say. I wish this movie was longer. 
I can't believe you're saying that because your critique of 99% of movies is it should have been 90 minutes. No, it doesn't need to be 90 minutes. It's just a lot of them aren't, don't need to be as long as they are. Mm-hmm. Like, especially nowadays, there's no reason for so many films to be, like, 20 minutes longer than they need to be. Mm-hmm. But in this movie, like, the With a Little Help from My Friend song, that could have been another minute. Mm-hmm. A number, especially during these early numbers, mm-hmm. most of them are like, a minute 15, mm-hmm. like 45 seconds. They're so short. They could have been a little bit longer, um, but I realized they were probably just trying to introduce all of the characters and get on with it maybe. Yeah. But like there are numerous scenes that I think should be longer. I think there's numerous plot points I would like to see explored more personally. Um, unfortunately, like one of the one of the main characters of this movie is Prudence, and Prudence is kind of an irrelevant character. So Prudence... Is played by TV Carpio, and I think she is absolutely fantastic. I love her. I want more of her. And I also want more of her because... In a longer movie, there would have been more of her because her introduction, that's the best intro number for any of these characters. Okay. Let me get on my soapbox for a second because the the love that I have for the reinterpretation of I want to hold your hand cannot be measured because one, it turns into a, a beautiful ballad. It is a yearning ballad. It turns into an I want song, which literally it is an I want song because it's I want to hold your well, hand. It, it's it's more distant. Like the original song feels like you're singing like in someone's face. Yeah. You know, it feels more like a, like a grease thing where you're just like in someone's business saying I want to hold your hand. It's a declaration versus this is like longing. Yeah. Long, like a long distance away. Like it literally is in the scene, mm-hmm. and like I don't know, I'm I'm not a person who who yearns per se. Like that's that's not a feminine tendency that I have. Mm-hmm. But I like the interpretation of it in this. I like the um the shot of her walking while all the football players are just crashing into each other and flying all over the place. If Julie Taymor knows how to do anything, it is block and choreograph a motherfucking scene. Oh, if that oh was Oh my god. If that shot was in like an Olivia Rodrigo music video, people on Twitter would be talking about how it's the most iconic thing of the fucking decade. Yeah. It like there are so many moments in this movie that I'm like if this was released today, people would talk about how brilliant she is, but because it came out in 2006, like the peak year where everyone's like we hate women and they fucking suck Mm -hmm. like she didn't get any credit i I think we're also just starting to get into like the the thick of musical burnout yeah and just getting starting people are starting to fully understand what like a movie musical kit is where it's like i'm into musicals but not enough to be like into musicals because now there's like a a lower barrier of entry because i can just go watch a movie i don't have to go see it live i don't have to go to theater class i don't have to do anything so now we're getting like a larger supply of mm-hmm. theater kids rather than like the hyper-focused I'm a thespian kids. In uh, the world of theater, those are the kids whose favorite show is whatever show they happen to see most recently. Yes. <laughs> I, I totally, I think there's a lot of people that are still like that. But Prudence is a character that is not explored nearly as much as I wish she was. Right. Like, they even include the Dear Prudence number, which I feel like is just a, like, I like it as a set piece where they're like, cool, it's multiple people coming in and they're saying through the door to her. And, like, I, I like it as a number. Mm-hmm. She's literally in the closet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's This movie's really on the nose. And that's one of the more obvious, like, really on the nose moments mm-hmm. is that she has a crush on Sadie. And who wouldn't? Look at her. She's hot. Oh, my God. She's so hot. I was in high school going, like, oh, Sadie's so hot. And, like, the girls around me were like, ew, she's old. <laughs> and, like, I think I'm the age she's of her like, now. Yeah, she's, like, 32 in this movie. <laughs> so and it's she's, like, she's not old. She's hot and raspy and, yeah. like, ugh. 
She's somebody who fucking can drink and smoke and have a good time. Like what that that's that's who I want to be. Mm-hmm. Just not let not so much in a hippy dippy kind of way. But they don't give Prudence like I think pretty much after that scene, I don't remember if that comes first or it's the scene where she's like, Oh, Max, you're gonna go off and kill all the Asian babies who kind of look like me. One whichever one of those comes last, mm-hmm. he's kind of the last substantial thing they do with her for the rest of the movie. Yeah, she kind of pops up at uh as a performer for Mr. Kite. Um, she shows up at the end. She basically just ends up in the chorus after yeah, that. Where yeah. it's like, you are a named character who is in this friend group and you cease to matter. Yeah, she's not only a named character, but she also has a backstory that really isn't explored outside of she is a cheerleader in Ohio and she realizes she has to leave because she can't be gay and Asian in Ohio, which mm-hmm. we know firsthand our spawn. <laughs> Our spawn. Hi, Ami. I don't know if you're listening. We love you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's real hard to be gay and Asian in Ohio. Um, so, uh, so you know, Prudence leaves, and then she ends up in the apartment across from our, our main core group, and the introduction- And then she comes in through the bathroom window, and everyone goes, eh, they said the <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah, so she comes in through the bathroom window, but she also has a black eye, because she- left a, a, a terrible situation in Ohio and then moved into a place where she was then abused because that's what she has to deal with to survive. And like, that's just not interrogated. But again, this is like a very surface level introduction to the sort of the, the sort of plot. So they're not mm-hmm. going to interrogate that because that's not what the movie's this, about. This movie is supposed to be more of a feel good movie, but like, I, I, I didn't realize this until we kind of sat down and started like really piecing our way through this film. But I think I have some complaints, not, not as adamant, not as adamant, mm-hmm. but I think I have some complaints about this film similar to how I have complaints about Rent. Mm-hmm. However, I think that this film is actually doing something with it in a way that Rent isn't. Yeah. We're like, Rent's characters, and I know some people have put in the suggestion box for May Musical Month that they want us to do Rent, and it'll happen one day. I need but, you all to know that, like... Oh, I'm putting it off as long as I can. Yeah, this is that is, like, Harmony's <laughs> least favorite movie ever made. Yep, it's it's I have I have strong feelings about rent, and I don't even know I I would have to really compose myself to be able to talk my way through that without it being unlistenable. But this film is primarily centered around Max, Jude, and Lucy. Mm-hmm. And Max, honestly, he's kind of doing his own thing, but he's just kind of married into this lead relationship. He's our Romeo also and Juliet, so good. I love Max. He's probably my favorite singer in the entire musical. Oh, he's fantastic. So. It's primarily focused around those three. Mm-hmm. So you have like political commentary happening, but it's like a that little that little Beatles sprinkle where it's like it's there if you want it to be, but you could ignore it. Like, sure, we have like the imagery of the Asian women who are being killed, and it's the only time that we would ever see the victims of the Vietnam War in this film, where that is the backdrop of the whole film. Mm-hmm. But don't focus on that. Like, look, there's CG and they're swimming in the pool and it's the John and Yoko pose. You can mm-hmm. ignore it real easily if you want to. Mm-hmm. There's the riots in Detroit where that make JoJo go ahead and move to New York, even though in Get Back, I think he's from Houston, but let's not go there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- th- that We can just kind of have that happen and then kind of ignore it. Mm-hmm. It's not brought up again. We can have the stuff with Prudence and we address it kind of, but we don't bring it up again. We can have Blackbird be sung by a white girl about herself <laughs> and then just kind of have that be what it's going to be. And I think that that, that self-centeredness is kind of the point because most yeah. hippies were rich white kids who could afford to just go like have a, have a hippie rumspringa, you know? 
Yes. And so that is a critique that this movie gets that I do agree with. Like the fact that this is a political movie, but we don't really get to hear from Prudence or Jojo, the people who would be affected by this the most. It's, it's the problem of Rent where it's like, God, we focus so much on the fucking white people. Yeah. <laughs> the more interesting people aren't white. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, by doing this, this movie does also feel like it is criticizing the people like Max and Lucy, Mm -hmm. who do come from a lot of money and could afford to be radical because they're being radical. There's a price to it. Mm -hmm. And that's a a kind of an unspoken thing. You don't have to be uh, hustling all the time to work three jobs to make rent. You have time to go ahead and just pick it around and build bombs. Right. It's like they show up to New York and they just get to move in with with Sadie because she's got the room for rent and she's like, yeah, I like your vibe. You're cool. They got like an artist collective apartment. Yeah. Bedrooms. Meanwhile, Prudence is literally across the street getting the shit kicked out of her because that's where she has to go to be able to survive. Mm-hmm. She doesn't get to do that. And that's why she, you know, kind of falls into their group because she's escaping once again. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it does play with the selfishness, which I like because we tend to romanticize eras that we weren't around for. Like the fifties is romanticized like crazy. Oh yeah. Um, you know, every other day, like we talked about that in our pleasant fill episode, so you can go listen to that one. But this is kind of a look at the way we romanticized the sixties, but also is critiquing that romanticization and the people who were involved in it. While at the same time, making space for the reality that there was a point to these people. Like we see that when Lucy's on the phone with her mom and her mom's like, I just don't want my precious daughter to get hurt. And she's my like, beautiful daughter. Yeah, my beautiful daughter to get hurt. That matters for rich people. That's she, true. She's, she's a beautiful. cute daughter, which means she likes her. Yeah. And she's like, you know, and I never thought my daughter would be so radical. And she's like, you should be radical. Everyone should be radical. And, you know, Lucy has the moment where she storms out and she's like, maybe people will start to care when they start dropping bombs here. And it's really hard not to think about, like, the episode of Pen15 when Anna first discovers racism mm-hmm. and, like, goes on the crusade about, like, why racism is so bad. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, Lucy, war has always been bad. But now it really matters to you because your high school boyfriend died and your brother's getting shipped off. And now you really care because now it's affecting you. Like, I I mean, I might not be as brushed up on American history because we mostly learned about World War II every fucking year for like eight years. But I'm not positive that we were in a war, really. Like, we weren't in a substantial war between World War II and Vietnam. So this is the one from her lifetime. Right. Um, So, like, I get it. Like, I understand why. And I like that the movie acknowledges that. Yes. But I do think that there are people who could watch this and see like, oh, these are the characters that I'm supposed to identify with and aspire to be like and these whatever, the ones whatever. We spend the most time with. Because we spend the most time with them. But like I think these are all very imperfect, selfish protagonists and people confused main character for, you know, aspiring person when in reality they just are the main characters, but yeah. they, you shouldn't aspire to be them, which is also kind of the, the root of a lot of these be musicals. Like when you watch hair, it's like, yeah, Claude and Berger are like our main characters, but they're also wrong in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Like, like the, the commentary about the, you know, rich white kids who didn't ask to be rich, but whatever it's here. If you look for it, but What's really funny is we're watching we're watching Schmigadoon 
right now, which I didn't watch the first season, but BJ's like, I think you'll like the second season. You don't need to, and you wouldn't have liked the first season. I, I'm not, <laughs> I, I feel like I would like the spectacle of a Golden Age musical, but mm-hmm. definitely the grittier, sexier ones. That is more of, your style. Of Chicago. Dude. <laughs> Jane Krakowski. <laughs> yeah. As a person who never really has gotten into 30 Rock, I've tried. It's not my for me. I would die for Jane Krakowski in every role she's ever been in, especially this one. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, Jane Krakowski in a suit. Jane Krakowski doing the splits on trapeze. Mm-hmm. She's the best. Yeah. She's doing a great interpretation of like a Billy Flynn in Chicago, which is also a show you've not seen. No. So I got to show you that too. At one point. But like, I will, I love that there's the Godspell hair hippie commune. Where they only sing songs about themselves, even though... It's so funny. It's so annoying that it's just like, <laughs> oh, wow, that this number that's supposed to be this uplifting thing, that's only about you? Okay, got uh-huh. it. <laughs> just going to talk over Keegan-Michael Key? All right. <laughs> it's so fucking smart. Like, I, I was joking about it on, on, on Twitter about how the Godspell parable is, like, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And the amount of people like, I've not seen Godspell, so this was lost on me. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> like, they nailed it. <laughs> you, you took me to see Godspell... Only because a bunch of people you loved were in it. Um, and Danny was Jesus, and he was great. Yeah, Danny, you're great. Hi. <laughs> I, I don't know if he's listening to this, but, like, I will show up to see anything Danny's in. He's the funniest part of when we saw Cannibal the Musical live. Yeah, he's great. He was amazing. <laughs> I, I say was. He still is amazing. I just, you know, don't live in Cleveland anymore. Um, I just, I, I think that commentary is very interesting, and it's very fascinating and very frustrating because people are going to glean what they want to from whatever this movie is. As far as the political commentary is concerned, can, can we just talk about the I want you, she's so heavy sequence? Because it is Look, amazing. I don't care how heavy handed that it, shit is. It it's is amazing. The heaviest. Like, Julie Tamar, she is so heavy with this image. <laughs> like, she is making sure that you cannot watch this scene and not know what the message is. And like, I respect that because she's like, all right, listen here, you little shits. You want to know what my feelings are about the war? You want to know what my feelings are about the American military complex? Here you fucking go. Oh, my God. Strap in. It's so funny and so amazing that, like, we have this AI-generated looking, like, th- this is what it looks like now. Like, he's kind of cel-shaded, but, like, this would be something someone makes with AI art now. But he's fucking Uncle Sam comes flying out of the wall and literally he's says, so scary looking. I want you. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's some smart use. And then the fucking she's so heavy as they're marching through a tiny jungle carrying the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> and they've got these fucking soldiers doing like weirdly homoerotic choreography. But they've got these fucking prosthetic jaws that make them look like the Tommy Lee Jones small soldier. Yeah, they all have Chip Hazard face. <laughs> That's awesome. 
awesome. Like, but they're so scary. I remember seeing that image in the trailer and being like, what the fuck is that? Oh, and then so you see it in the movie and I'm like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like, I was already blown away during Come Together when they have, like, the business suit men choreography in the middle of New York. Oh, no, that shit's tight. Which, like, that is so cool and really, really beautiful. But once you get into I Want You, She's So Heavy, I was just like exploding brain emoji just Ugh. what it's, there's a lot of heavy handed stuff on here and I just whatever that one I'm just like no make it heavier yeah <laughs> so, lay, it, lay it on more thick make I'm her heavier <laughs> I love it so much um, but come together I want to talk about that for a sec because there are cameos there are celebrities in this movie None of them are obvious and it's great, except one, but we'll get there. One is painfully obvious. Like, it pulls you out of the movie. It's so fucking obvious. But Joe Cocker, pulling, he got costume changes. He got three costume changes. Like, Joe, what's really funny is, like, Joe Cocker, when we first see him, this is my favorite version of Come Together, by the way. Um, the backing vocals are great. Joe Cocker has made a career off of covering so many people, um, especially the Beatles. The sex worker chorus. Ooh, perfect. Mm-hmm. Ooh, his ooh, his ooh. version of something from the uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen album, mm-hmm. my favorite version of something, because mm-hmm. George wrote a damn good song and Joe fucking put some punch on it. But I love that just like a, a man in like the subway doing his Joe Cocker arm motions, just like they didn't even have to dress him up. He just like pops up in a bathrobe and it's like, yeah, that's just kind of what Joe Cocker looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and then they go ahead and give him a complete costume change where they just for men the shit out of him and he turned him into a pimp. And he has Undertaker's facial hair. <laughs> he does. It looks awful. But it like, it's, I love it's, it. it's awful that it's great. <laughs> oh my God. It's so bad in the best way. Um, like it works well, like knowing that, like I don't think just for men was a thing in the sixty, but it's, but it makes so much miss. But it works so well as like an old dude who doesn't want to look that old, so he's like putting shoe polish on his face, so it kind of looks like shit on purpose. Mm-hmm. Like I love that, and then he's also just kind of an old hippie, and that that's kind of who Joe Cocker is. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that sequence is that sequence is fun. It's mm-hmm. good. I big fan. Um, the the Susie Izzard sequence. We'll get to that in a sec because mm-hmm. we, we we've we've got a cameo in the middle here that is so goddamn <laughs> distracting, but also perfect, but distracting. So, so so obviously I am I am a Beatles person. Harmony is a Beach Boys person. But if there's one thing that unites us both, it's that Bono is a fucking tool. <laughs> God, he's the worst. Bon- <laughs> This is a song that Charles Manson took from the Beatles. Tonight, we're taking it back. Okay. Okay, Bono, calm down. All right. We got it. Really high on yourself there, my guy. (laughs) I wonder if he's chilled out in his old age. He probably hasn't. But even if he has, he still has, like, decades and decades of pomp and arrogance that will forever cloud any, like, reappraisal of him Do you remember when iTunes forced everyone to have a U2 album? Yeah. Nobody wanted it. Sucked to have an iPhone, didn't it? Yeah, it was it was real shit when that happened. <laughs> but like, I don't I just oh my god. Um the Dr. Robert character, that this whole part, I think this is when this movie is it kind of falls off a cliff a little bit. Which for me. Yeah. It makes it makes sense for why it does. But in terms of like the pacing of this movie, I think this movie finds its feet mm-hmm. around the time when everybody ends up in New York together. Like we've gotten all the introductions out of the way. Everyone's together. This is our core group. These are the people we're focusing on. Anyway, um, eventually we're going to go on a little drug trip, and now we're focusing on spectacle and cameos and not our main characters, and then the movie just kind of gets lost for a while. So I have conflicting feelings about the, the, the drug trip section of this movie because I don't like the Dr. Robert stuff, um, but I do think 
that if anybody's going to play this like kind of hippie grifter, Bono is a great choice. Mm-hmm. But Bono's voice is extremely distracting. Oh, the second he opens his mouth, and it's yeah. just like, oh, I like this. This is a fantasy kind of rooted in reality, but like I like this isn't like a character that's just Bono. Like, that yeah, our reality has permeated straight into this. Like, I straight into my veins. It's just Bono's voice coming. Yeah, if through we're the gonna, if, <laughs> the best way to describe it is in Just Friends. He's all Bono-y. Yeah, <laughs> like. Distractingly Bonoy. The second he starts saying, the second he starts saying like "I am he," all I hear is like "Uno, dos, tres, catorce" from uh-huh. that fucking iTunes commercial. Yeah, like that's all. Obviously, it's a song too, but like that's what I think of. Hello, hello. Like that—that's what it sounds like. Like it sounds like I'm the Walrus, but it's just Bono. Um, so it's really distracting. But when he is playing his character. I like the Dr. Roberts character because I'm like, of course you'd be this fucking guy. Yeah. Um, I love Susie Izzard as Mr. Kite. I love the way it integrates the bread and puppet theater puppets. I think that's really cool. Um, yeah, anybody who sees those like giant like puppet people and you're like, what the fuck is that? That's so weird. That's an, a 60-year-old theater troupe that does paper mache protesting. It's mm-hmm. long history. Look up bread and puppet theater. It's really, really cool. But I love that sequence, but you kind of need... Dr. Robert to get them there because otherwise it doesn't make sense. And I think that some of the imagery in For the Benefit of Mr. Kite is some of the strongest, but you also, this is where like you kind of have to play 3D chess with Julie Taymor a little bit. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it kind of looks a bit like that that float on video that Modest Mouse did. Yeah, which I love. <laughs> which like, I like the video. Like it looks kind of cheap in a way that has a lot of character and charm and I like yeah. it. That said... I feel like if this was one of those things where they were source material, they mm-hmm. either would have changed it or cut it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Which, like, I, in terms of characters, in terms of hippie-ass characters in the 60s, hippies would just get in a van and just go get lost for a while. Oh, man, we lost three weeks on drugs, and now mm-hmm. we're in New Mexico or something. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just a thing that would happen. Like, you know... Come to San Francisco with flowers in your hair or whatever. That that was right. That that makes sense. But in terms of like the pacing of the movie, maybe we would have like I don't know when the intermission would have been in like a live production. Mm-hmm. I assume it would have been either right before or right after these sequences. Mm-hmm. But it really makes the movie kind of go off in a weird direction, and it takes a sec for it to recover. Yeah, it 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 gets a little weird because either you're really on board with it or you're not, and I. I get that completely. And I think that there is nice commentary because like Lucy does drugs for the first time and then suddenly she's like radicalized. Mm -hmm. And that is also a very teenage thing of like you smoke weed for the first time. This is my whole personality. (laughs) Yeah. Suddenly it's like. I love Sublime. They're my favorite band. I'm so deep. I had this really transcendental experience and now I just see the world differently, man. Like. Like, Have you ever seen Dark Side of the Rainbow? (laughs) Like. Like it's very much that kind of energy. But then there is something like really beautiful because then they have, you know, the rendition of Because in the Grass that is it's beautiful. so beautiful. And I, we gorgeous. just needed to get them out of New York so we could put them in some hippie nature scenes. Yeah. Where it looks like those <laughs> Natalie Portman perfume ads <laughs> where she yeah. sings Janis Joplin. <laughs> um, I, 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 I think that functionally I know what purpose these serve. Mm-hmm. Visually, they're a treat. Mm-hmm. The movie's weird. And I, I think this is, I, I think those scenes are why a lot of people checked out of this movie because I think, I, I think, it becomes too much for them. I think it's where the opening 20 minutes happens and people go, eh, all right, but then it finds its footing. And then that part happens and it's so big and so colorful and so distracting. Then it goes, 
oh, that's right. Now I remember the first 20 minutes again where I felt kind of weird as I was starting to get on board. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it takes a sec and then maybe I don't know if they can fully recover from like audiences because I've 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 heard people just be like, yeah, no, that movie, man, it just it feels like a mess. And I don't think it's a mess. I think there's some messy segments. I think it also is really hard because people are kind of accustomed to the formula of a musical. And this doesn't follow that formula at all. Because after the drug scene, that's when conflict starts happening. This is where Jude and Lucy start getting into a fight. Jude, at one point, goes back to Liverpool Mm -hmm. and kind of ignores that girlfriend he had at the first opening scene that he just conveniently forgot about the entire time he was in New York. As Jude's Liverpool girlfriend. (laughs) Right. Um, But, like, this is after he barges into, like, Paco's little political house front or mm-hmm. whatever and starts making a mess while sing talking revolution. Mm-hmm. And like, again, like that sequence works for like the slacktivism that they're doing where they're like, are they doing things? Well, they're doing more than nothing, but are they actually doing things? That's debatable mm-hmm. because these are rich kids who are just building bombs and kind of sort of making things worse. Cause it's angry young people leading angry young people rather than having any dedicated like civil rights leaders or anybody who's used to protesting in their ranks. And something that I do really like as well is when Jude and Lucy do have their big kind of blow up, she, he yells at her and is like, I'm sorry I'm not the guy with the megaphone, but mm-hmm. this is what I do. And it's, you know, his art because it does bring up this really fascinating conflict and conversation that we have even today of like, is one type of activism better than the other? Are you doing enough if you're doing something that is like interpretive or art or should you like, what should we be doing? What should we be doing? Mm -hmm. And I think that that speaks to the helplessness and also frustration a lot of teenagers feel because I think when you're a teenager, you kind of feel powerless and you're just trying to do anything that you can to feel like you have power to make your voice heard, to enact changes that you want to see, but you don't actually have systemic power to do so. Mm-hmm. And then you start infighting because you you can't fight the people you actually want to fight. I agree totally. I wonder, um, I wonder if the movie was longer. I think this part of the movie would be the part that would benefit with more with more runtime, with, with more fleshing out. Because I think so. They fight. He goes back to Liverpool and then like six minutes later, he's back. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he leaves the state and like flies over the ocean and then flies back very suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't have a lot of infighting time between them, them all. But I, I don't know how it was for you, but I remember getting swept up in like the ideals of like peace and Woodstock and how like it was a better time because that's what everyone always says they romanticized it they 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 galvanized it as like truly the best time where we were doing things and we were young people united and you could move into a fucking house that was named after like Edgar Allan Poe and be like it's the Poe house and everyone gets to paint their bedroom walls any color they want Mm -hmm. and there's nine of us who live here and it's gonna be great and we're gonna have a platonic polycule Mm -hmm. but This segment, I think, is more of the logistics of actually being surrounded by people. Like, you can be united with people. You can have a friend group. You can have a community without it being everyone being agreeable with each other. Everybody being 100% completely on the same page all the time. Which I think a lot of people, especially now, don't understand that conflict is healthy. Mm -hmm. And any kind of dispute doesn't mean that you can't agree with people and you can't fight alongside people. 
Mm-hmm. Like, you, unity is a really, really hilarious thing in that sense where, like, people don't necessarily know what that means to be united together. I agree completely. So there's another article that I want to reference from, uh, again, from Refinery29. They're just big on the Across the Universe beat, apparently. Mm. Uh, But it's 10 years on, Across the Universe is even more of a delight. And I think this writer kind of summarizes a lot of similar feelings that we have, which uh, they they introduced by saying that they were one of those teenagers who made the Beatles their entire personality in high school. So they were like, hell yeah, I'm going to see this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, The the kind of teen who will be 19 years old and get an all-you-need-is-love or alternatively love is all you need tattoo across like their collarbone or something. Yes. (laughs) Um, And the writer says the movie wasn't as profound as I was hoping. Like I said, I was a snob. I rolled my eyes at some of the film's reductive depictions of the sixties and its love story between Jude and Lucy seemed too fast to be true. Plus the idea of Jude's abandoned girlfriend in Liverpool sulking around missing him haunted me the whole movie. (laughs) Same. (laughs) I mean, he's very handsome. He is. He looks like he would be in an indie rock band in the 2000s. Like, he looks like he would sing for Jet or something. He totally does. Um, And also, like, I guess, like, while we're here, it is so weird how really none of this cast has gone on to be, like, big superstars, despite the fact that they're amazing. Yeah, like, it's really... Well, exception of Evan Rachel Wood. Like, she's still actively working and was killer on Westworld and deserves better. Yeah, my understanding is, like, I, I glanced over their IMDb's and it seems like everybody else kind of does stuff. But they haven't done really anything super duper high profile outside of Evan Rachel Wood, which is a huge bummer because, like, obviously they can all sing. Everyone here can sing. They this, can all act. This is, this is not a Lemiz situation where they hired people who are, like, I mean, they're serviceable, but, like, they've got a face hey, and a name. Hey, some of them can sing. Some some of them can, but that's some Emphasis of them can. Emphasis on some. Some of them can't. Like, everyone's always like, oh, Russell Crowe. And I'm like, Eddie Redmayne. He sings through his nose. I hate it. But the way I think everyone kind of is, like, they deserved better, and this mm-hmm. is maybe like a Grease 2 situation where they got Michelle Pfeiffer, but then didn't bounce back mm-hmm. the way Michelle Pfeiffer did, mm-hmm. which is a, a damn shame, because I think if this movie had been bigger, I think everyone in this would have had bigger acting careers, or maybe mm-hmm. they don't want to have bigger acting careers, and they're happy where they are. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. And continuing back to this this post... Rewatching the film for its 10th anniversary, however, I found that everything that irked me back then, doe-eyed sentimentality, history told through montage, strings of almost cringe-inducing earnestness, is actually a delight. 
All I could think was, life and history are always rosier when sung through the filter of Beatles songs. Have I gotten older, or have times just gotten worse? Mm. And I think there's something about that that I think really resonates with the film's ending. Because the ending is, all you need is love. And we all know... It's the rooftop concert. Right. It's 10 Things I Hate About You. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) But like, yeah, there's... Love is not all you need. To quote Sugar and Spice, love will not buy your baby diapers. Um, Can I pay my rent in fun? Can I pay my rent in exposure? No. Like, you do need more than that. But there's something really magical and almost optimistically inspiring about allowing yourself to believe for just half a second that that is all that you need. Because I think we kind of need those reminders that, like, yes, you do need more than love. But love is also still a vital part of that. You do need to have an appreciation. I say this as an incredibly cynical fucking person who is quite miserable 90% of the time. Man, remember the 60s when in New York City you could afford rent for the cost of a can of beans? Fucking right. (laughs) It was a lot easier to just think love is all you need back then. (laughs) Right. And I think because things... I think things genuinely have gotten worse. Is the, so much worse. It's not even debatable. Like, there's obviously a lot of things that have changed for the better. Like, the progress has been made in, in a lot of ways that are that are good. But things are also fucking terrible. It's just terrible but wearing a new hat. Mm-hmm. Like, it's awful. And so it it is a nice reminder to, to remember love and to remember, you know, how nice it is to have starry-eyed hopes and dreams because the world is so crushing yeah like maybe you get shot and you're lying in a hospital bed waiting to die singing happiness is a warm gun and then five selma hayek's as sexy nurses show up and that's all you need that's all you need (laughs) you need a little bit of love from sexy selma hayek who has no lines in this movie other than singing bang bang shoot shoot and you know what oh my god she did her job i just that's the thing i want to see before also another cameo that we didn't realize was kind of in this movie um james urbaniak shows up (laughs) yeah james urbaniak is sadie's uh like manager or like record 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 executive and (laughs) we see him in the dark corner and i was like that guy is James Urbaniak face. And then we <laughs> hear him talk and we go, that's James Urbaniak. Well, it's, it's so funny because he is like the Venture Brothers is one of my favorite shows and one of yours as well. Oh, yeah. And as is difficult people where he, oh, God, he's so brilliant. On it is people. <laughs> hilarious how much his voice is just Dr. Venture's voice. And mm-hmm. that's what he sounds like in this. And yet it is not distracting the way that Bono is distracting. <laughs> yeah, which is very, very strange. We also didn't talk a whole lot about like Sadie and Jojo, but also like because the movie kind of doesn't give us a lot to talk about them. They're basically like, They're in a band hey, and then they bicker and then they break up. Hey, here we go. We have Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix avatars. You're welcome. Like, that's essentially what that's... it is. And, and we even have a Janis Joplin pseudo cameo at the end of the movie. Right. With, like her Porsche and like the back of uh, the head of someone who's like, implied to be Janis Joplin, I Thing. Yeah, showing up to Strawberry Jam's records, which we know is it's Apple. Apple records. Yeah, <laughs> we're all just all of these little things of like, oh, when I'm six before, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah gotcha. Um, I don't know. I think they're, 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 as a fantasy, mm-hmm. I think that this ending is super fucking hokey, but like works on a teen level. Totally. This is this is say anything. Yeah, because like, do <laughs> I do I want this to be deeper than it is? Yes. I, I want this to address, like, the politics of the world. I want it to ad- address, like, so many other things that are going on at the time and also in the 2000s because this translates remarkably well between the two decades. 
But as soon as you do that, it stops being about the Beatles and it stops being about these characters. And we've already talked about how, like, the musical segments that have less to do with these characters are, like, arguably the most inessential and worst. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it just kind of doesn't work. And then it just sort of becomes a retelling of literally any other story from the 60s. Mm-hmm. So I like that it uses its medium. Mm-hmm. You have the Beatles. Use the Beatles. Make it about the Beatles. Don't make it about all the shit we see all the time about the 60s. Yeah. And I think that this this is such a good example of what a jukebox musical should be. Don't get me wrong. I love the camp fucking nonsense of Rock of Ages. Man, it used to be funny when Alec Baldwin and Russell Brand kissed, and now it's just sad. And now there's a weed whacker. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone can hear that. I don't know if it's a weed whacker or a power saw. Someone is putting in work yeah. next door. Um, but no, you're right. It, 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 I, I think the best example, and this I think will be like my capsule thought, is going back to I Want to Hold Your Hand. I will say shout out. I think If I Fell, I think the rendition that Evan Rachel Wood does in that also completely recontextualizes what that song is actually about Mm -hmm. in a very beautiful way. Um, I also do want to shout out um, I've Just Seen a Face and that entire scene in a bowling alley, it is the second best bowling alley choreography ever put to film. Grease 2 obviously is the best, but it's beautiful. I also just really like I've Just Seen a Face and I'm shocked that it ended up making this list because it's kind of a deep cut that isn't on all versions of Rubber Soul. Yeah, there's It's a, one of my favorites, There's actually. a couple of songs in here that I'm always like, ooh, <laughs> that got was a, a nice. Got a little saucy. We Look didn't include you. the obvious things right. like yesterday. Yesterday's not here, probably because it was too expensive. We didn't include In My Life, all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I actually really like it in my life. I love it in my life. The Johnny Cash version. Again, reinterpreting it, like, it's very different coming from an old dying man than, like, 24-year-old John Lennon. I will bark one trivia thing. And in my life, when they do, like, the, all my life, is the same notes as, wow, at the late night double feature picture show. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> but going back to, uh, you know, If I Fell, I Think is Beautiful, but I want to hold your hand, Right. Arguably, probably the Beatles' most recognizable song in their entire discography. Possibly, though, according to Spotify, by a large margin, their most popular song is Here Comes the Sun. Okay, fair. It's got like, I think it's got like 900 million streams and like the next best one is like 300 million. I feel like Here Comes the Sun is like a very popular song like for babies. It's, it's, I hear it on TikTok a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think that's why. Oh yeah, a lot of dog videos get that. And I think that, yeah, they count streams for that. Okay, that makes sense. So that's probably why. So debatable on what their best known one is right now. But I Want to Hold Your Hand very much is up there. Certainly of their early career. Yes. And... I want to hold your hand is like, like you said, it sounds like somebody like kind of screaming a demand in your your face. face, But I want to hold your hand, damn it. The way that this is reinterpreted, I think is, this is what he's talking about in Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. Mm -hmm. When he's like, nah, man, the Beatles got it right. I don't want to be married to you for a hundred years. I don't want to just have a 24 hour fuck fest. I just want to hold your hand. I just, I love you so much that even just holding your hand is all that I need. And I think across the universe, because it captures that and because it captures, you know, what is it really about, man, but does so in a way that doesn't feel like it's sticking your nose up, it just feels very sincere and very genuine that it is just a very comforting movie about uncomfortable situations. 
And there's something to that. It's kind of like Empire Records where there's the hope that somehow everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Some, somehow Max gets over um, being in a hospital and developing maybe a morphine addiction and getting shot. And is just like, we're good now. I'm just happy to see my bud. Yeah, I'm just going to go back to being a cabbie and having a great time. Like, or like Sadie and Jojo get back together and like they're going to keep making beautiful music. And Prudence or, just kind of has to suffer in silence in the corner, I guess. And Prudence is just going to show up and play her little toy piano. And but, give the give the cops a Pepsi, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of. Um, you know, they're... they're is something to be said about capturing the optimism and hope of being a teenager and thinking about the possibilities that the world could be better by your own actions Mm -hmm. because the world is terrible and it's really hard to feel that way. And it's really easy to become hopeless. And I'm not saying like across the universe is saving lives. Like that's ridiculous. But I mean, it's a musical and most musicals are escapism. <laughs> right. And that that it's exactly that. It's escapism and it's a fantasy. This is not trying to be an accurate depiction of what was really going on in that time period. So for what it is, it is absolutely doing the job that it's supposed to. I think it is a fantastic auteur effort from Julie Taymor. I am so sad that this movie gets disrespected because of it being directed by a woman. And I enjoy all of the music. I think this is a a solid fucking jukebox musical. It's probably the best example of how to do a jukebox musical, in my opinion. And I'm glad we got to talk about it. I would argue that Rocket Man is better, but that's also a biopic. Well, yes, Rocket Man is a biopic. Therefore, it already gets like a, a notch above. <laughs> well, this movie's also juggling a million genres because, like, mm-hmm. it's a movie musical. It's you know, I guess just a regular musical. It's a period piece. It's a fantasy film. It's a romance. It's a teen it's, movie. It's, it's a war film. It's a, war it's a film. drama. Like it's 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 wearing many hats. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I don't know. The, and sometimes the movie reflects that because you'll have. Like three different stories combining on each other in one song with a bunch of filters and a ton of visual things happening. And, you know, it's overloading your senses on purpose. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool to see somebody do that because, especially right now when we're in our like everyone's, you know, totally Jones in for four quadrant success, mm-hmm. it's been so long since I've seen a director just go, fuck it, I'm doing what I want to do. And yeah. I just, oh, I love it so much. I mean, I, I, respect, so I respect the And they swing. gave Julie Taymor $70 million to make this movie. I can't, I, when is the last time a, a woman director got to do that and it wasn't a Marvel movie? I don't know. Uh, or sure, DC. Like I'm sure it's semantics. happened. <laughs> and we just don't have the, the fi- figures in front of us. But yeah. like, you know. I just can't, I can't, I can't remember. And it's so cool. Alrighty, the time has come. Across the Universe is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? So you quoted Nick and Nora, and I love Nick and Nora. But like, this movie this movie has to be a lot of things to a lot of different people. So on one hand, you have like, Brendan Fraser in Airheads saying like, do you think I give a shit about the Beatles? And on the other hand, you have like, Jonah Hill in super bad, basically being <laughs> she like, even she looked in his eyes. It's like the first time I heard the Beatles. Yeah. So like <laughs> there, there, there's two different levels and it has to mean a lot of things to a lot of different people because music and the Beatles mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, I don't know. I, this is a flawed movie, but I respect its swings. I wish there was, I wish it was better. I, I, I think that had this been a stage musical, you would have had time to workshop it and hammer out some kinks and it would have been a better product for it, even if you made changes when you actually brought it to the screen. 
But that's that's kind of like all my complaints are what this about what this movie isn't rather than what it is. And what it is, it's good. It's it's visually stunning. I think the performances are good. I think the characters are, you know, a little one note. But I, again, I wish this movie was longer. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm going to give it a maybe. Cool. The, the way I remember you describing this at one point was saying like, yeah, this is a movie I would just put on in the background and then sing along to the songs that I like while I was doing other things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably a good way to do it because there's a lot of this that I could just sort of like tune out to. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need the drawing charcoal on a wall thing and then there's a cop suddenly above their head. Like, it's Yeah, hard... what's he been doing? He's just hanging out up there? I think it's a hard day's night reference. But it like, absolutely he's just is. Lurking but like... in an abandoned building so that he can yell at some children on the first floor. <laughs> right. What, what would he have done if they hadn't been there to draw with with charcoal on on the side of the wall? Would he just have sat up there it's all day? A sting. <laughs> I don't know. There, there's a lot of things you have to suspend your disbelief for with this movie, where it's like because again, why, it's theater. Because it's theater. Like Bex, why are you opening your mail at a diner? <laughs> right. Why didn't you do that at home? But I digress. You probably already have an opinion on this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, y- you have an opinion on the Beatles. You have an opinion on Across the Universe. I'm probably not going to change it. But, like, you have a you have an even-keeled thing on this one where mm-hmm. BJ loves it and I'm like, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Which, surprisingly positive considering I compared it to Rent and I have no positive memories <laughs> in my life associated with the Beatles music. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I'll take it maybe. And on that note, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at The Sunset Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use Title as our theme song. So this is where we shout out an, an indie band inspired by the movie, but I feel like you are it's kind of an unfair thing to be like, who's inspired by the music of the Beatles? I mean... Honestly, just roll the dice. Most people are in some degree probably inspired by the Beatles. <laughs> but as far as a band that has to sort of be associated with the movie that prominently features the Beatles, that that's a bit unfair. Mm-hmm. But I think I got a really good band. So mm-hmm. today we're shouting out to the band Tchotchke. They released a self-titled album last year. They have sort of like a like an indie rock power pop vibe for their more rockin' numbers. But then they have like these two-thirds time signature waltzing psychedelic pop songs where there's like suddenly a horn section and strings and glockenspiel. Fuck yeah to a glockenspiel. Right. Fucking bomb the music industry, ELO. Just give me. Give me rock songs with the glockenspiel. <laughs> Huge fan. Um, but, the, but they're super duper fun. Their album's only like nine songs long. So it's like a real like all killer, no filler, get in and get out kind of thing. Nice. So yeah, Chachki rules. Give them a listen. There, if you if you're unaware of how to spell the word tchotchke, <laughs> it doesn't start with a C. Pro tip: It does not. It is T C H O T C H K E. Beautiful. There you go. I had to look at that one because I was like, I got halfway through and went, uh. <laughs> Don't worry, that happens to me with the words restaurant and temperature. Okay. And deodorant all the time. <laughs> All right, friends. Thank you so much for listening. We will be continuing on with May Musical Month next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye.
This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.